All right. Well, we're going to switch gears. Um, so this morning I had planned to cover Malachi 4, but, but with everything, I just I know I won't have time to do it justice. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. I do want you to come back next week. We're going to finish out Malachi next week, which I thought might might have happened. Um, so no harm, no foul. Uh, God's will has been done here this morning. Amen? Amen. What a powerful testimony of the work that he's doing in our young people. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. You know, I've, I've said this a few times. I have personally... Uh, witness pastors get just get infuriated when children start crying in the service and uh, babies start crying and, and make a big deal about it but I've never understood that uh, I've always thought of course you know I've, I kind of get tunnel vision I don't you know people ask me to say do you see how many people is getting up and going out the back I wasn't pointing y'all out I was just saying <laughs> generally speaking uh, and I just say I don't, I don't really ever notice that, you know, and they say, well, you didn't see, you know, or you didn't hear that, you know, person doing it. I, I just don't, but my point is, is that our children are our future. They absolutely are our future, and what Dakota said earlier was on point, is that if we really want to make a difference, you know, we can read our Bibles and study our Bibles, and that's great. We can spend time in prayer, and that's absolutely needed. But we need to be developing our children. We need to be training them up in the way that they should go. We need to be loving them. And we need to be doing that with children that are, are, that are not our biological children, too, because a lot of parents don't love Jesus. And so uh, we need to step in that gap. So uh, I praise God for the children. I praise God for Hambone and Deb. They are relentless. You know, give God a hand on that. You know, Hambone's up here telling about how awesome they did, but... Man, you know, that guy's literally pouring himself out before the Lord uh, as an offering. So we praise God for him and Deb. And uh, thankful to see you guys here. We got the mo motorcycle gang in the back. What's up? Glad y'all felt comfortable coming today. <laughs> welcome, welcome. And to all of you other hellions, too. I mean, wellions. <laughs> we praise God. We all fit right in. We family up in here, right? Uh, so we praise God for um, what he's doing here at the well. And I have been in conversations. If you will pray for me, I've got a couple of really, I think, really, really important lunch meetings this week with some leaders in our area about some of the issues that's going on in our community. Uh, if, you're, if you're from around here, you're aware that we've been overrun with drugs. And the big thing right now is heroin and meth. And it's just absolutely it's it's saturated our community and it's destroying lives so i've got a couple of meetings this week that i'm just trying to tease out some things and ask some questions and see how we can maybe um, move forward doing something so i know prayer it helps but i think god is calling us to action so pray about that um but i say all of that to say this is that what i'm really appreciative about the well is that um I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a place where it, what's up, Mike? I ain't seen you in a minute, man. I just saw you back there. Good to see you, brother. Y'all say hello to Mike Byers. Good to see you, brother. <laughs> Glad to have you visiting with us. 
Um, but anyway, this is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. That's kind of been what we've said from the beginning. And I've seen people be set free from drugs and alcohol and to be fully embraced as part of the family, whereas um, that's not always the case. I'm not going to talk down about any anybody else, but I love that about here. Well, the Lord just kind of pressed that on me this morning, and, and as I listened to what the Lord told me before I got started, and that movement of you can see the love of God through the people around you, through the people of God around you. And oftentimes, what happens when you get into sin? What happens when you fall into temptation? What, what is the typical response to most believers when they find themselves falling into temptation? What is it, Dakota? Yeah, they withdraw. They isolate themselves. They separate themselves from anybody that is walking in the light or is walking out their faith. Why do we do that, you think? Shame, yeah. Why else? Embarrassment, shame and embarrassment. I think there's a few other reasons. Why? Huh? Exposed. Accountability. You see, the darkness hates the light. And when we find ourselves... Have, having been tripped up and fallen into those past sins. You know, the Bible describes it as a dog returning to its own vomit. You know, vomit is something that wasn't supposed to be in there, that the body ejected because it wasn't supposed to be there. And that's like what happens to us when we are born again. The, the Spirit comes in, dwells inside. He rids us of that sin. He gets rid of that. We're justified. We're no longer bound to sin, that we've been washed. And when we go back to sin, it's like a dog returning to its own vomit, that nastiness. And that's a disgusting picture, right? But that's how the Bible feels about it. That's how God feels about it, that when we go back to that, right? Well, when we, when we fall back into that darkness, we don't want to be around somebody who's in the light because of shame, yes. But because also it, may, it brings into light the sin that we've welcomed back into our lives. And sometimes it's not even that it's a visible sin. It may be something you're doing in the closet or in the bathroom or something that nobody knows about you think, but God knows about it. And when you get around someone who's a faithful believer and, and walking, not perfectly, but walking in the Lord, then you feel the weight of that because you know where you should be. And so we isolate ourselves. Well, oftentimes that can happen even if we just identify too much with the past sins that we were involved in, the past sins that we've been set free from. See, the church is really good about preaching and teaching, usually, that Jesus Christ died for your sins because you are a sinner that were born in with a sin nature, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and Jesus died so that he could pay for your sin. But oftentimes we leave it there, and we've talked about that here several times. We fail to move past the cross, not that we would forget the cross, but that we would move past the cross into the burial, which is the burial of the sin, and then even to the resurrection, which is Jesus Christ overcoming death, sin, hell, and Satan, and, and being resurrected unto life where he leaves sin behind and now he is righteous. Now he, not that he was never righteous, but even not even having our sin on him, but he took our sin to the grave and when he resurrected, he was, he was pure. He, he didn't even have our sin on him anymore. And even then the ascension to where he, he, he ascended into heaven and took his rightful place on the throne, right? And now we are to identify with Christ who not only resurrect, not only died on the cross to pay for our sin, 
resurrected to prove that he had the power to overcome sin and leave it behind, but then ascended to take his seat on the throne to show he has power and dominion and authority over everything and that we are now held by him in his proper place as king of kings and lord of lords and in that that we although we understand that we were sinners and that we still are in in large part but that we have been washed clean of our sins past present and future and so while we understand that we're still sinners and we are overcoming sin by the blood of the Lamb and the power of testimony, with that, but that we identify with Christ who is seated in the heavenlies and the Bible calls us saints, okay? What I'm saying is this, is that oftentimes we're so aware of the sinners that we were that we often fail to be comfortable coming into the presence of other believers, coming into the presence of preaching and teaching and worship we often feel so connected to our past sins that we can't freely worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as King of Kings. And so we remain down here, oh, poor pitiful me, and we, ref we refuse to come into his presence and go into the, into the throne room of grace by his power and by his blood. But what I want to show you today, briefly, I don't have a lot of time, is that w you're looking at that all wrong. You're looking at that all wrong. And this is what I mean. That those who fully understand and are aware of the sinners that they were can not only appreciate the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, but I'm going to make the proposition that they can appreciate it even more and oftentimes do. Okay? So while your past sins oftentimes hinder you they should compel and propel you into the presence of God instead of keeping you on the outskirts uh, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 and we're going to start in Luke chapter 7 in verse 36 and I want to read you here um, of the account that Jesus Christ has with some Pharisees let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's word We'll start in verse, I'm going to read more than this, but we'll, we'll start in verse uh, 41. Jesus says to them, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now I want to back up a little bit. He tells this little parable. He tells this little story to illustrate a point. But the point, the parabolic point, was meant to convey a truth about the historical situation in which he found himself. So here Jesus is. He's actually historically sitting at one of the Pharisees' tables, and he's having dinner with them, and that's where we find ourselves in the story. Look back to verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with, the, with her hair. 
uh, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if he said to himself, remember that, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them do you, uh, now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Oh, how backwards our churches have become. Maybe we should rewind that. How about we say it this way? Oh, how backward the religious have always been. And let us be careful lest we not realize the risk and the natural propensity or natural flow that we as human beings if we allow ourselves to get in our pride will move in the direction of looking down our religious nose at those in desperate need you see we are uh, an oddity in this church we're new relatively speaking we're nine years old and the church was started by a bunch of misfits, right? Literally. I tell people often that they'll say, oh, you don't know where I've been. I'll say, come on to the well. If the guy up front has a rap sheet longer than yours, you'll probably be all right. <laughs> right? Well, it's kind of primed us in a position because of my past to minister to people who are broken and who are weary and who are dirty, right? Feel dirty. But what we need to realize is, is that even in our young stage is that we are all the time developing our traditions, aren't we? We're all the time developing who we are in Christ. And we're all the time hearing the enemy whisper, You've graduated, you've graduated, you've graduated. But the moment that you feel like you've graduated from your broken position and neediness of Jesus Christ is the moment you've inserted your place into the most dangerous and disgusting part of all, which is religious superiority. You see, the moment we, we think that we have we have graduated and we've reached this point of 
superiority. Well, we've reached this point of, of excellence that you just, when you get up here, then you'll be godly. At that point, it is the most depraved point of all. Because Jesus Christ, while he was straightforward with sinners, he was in their face. You remember he met the woman at the well and she, you know, tried to skirt her sin and she says, I'm not married. (laughs) He says, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, you've been married four times already and you divorced all those and the guy you're with right now is not your husband. She's like, oh, And then she goes off and says, come meet a man who told me all of my sin, right? He's all the time doing this. He knows how to get down up under the the facade that you've laid before you. You, you, He knows how to take the mask off, right? Remember the rich young ruler? He he came to the rich young ruler, or a rich young ruler came to him. He said, what must I do to be saved? Well, Jesus knew right away what this guy's problem was. His problem wasn't that he wasn't religious or that he didn't think highly of the commands. He said, keep all the commands, which only showed the man's problem. He's like, I've done all of that. Oh, really? (laughs) You've kept, oh, wow, you know. Okay, I'll tell you what. One more thing then. Go sell everything you have. Come follow me. Oh, man. Look, I won't kill anybody, okay? I won't, I won't sleep around on my wife okay i won't have any carved out idols and jesus is like no you are your idol you love you more than you love me and that's what he pointed out and the man went away sad because why because he had to he had much so here we find this story in here where jesus came and this is what we'll talk about next week too because this is i've been studying this because of what i've been studying in malachi and the connection there is, is that when Jesus Christ came, if you remember what I taught you in Malachi, the end of chapter 3, is that I taught you that Malachi's the last prophecy, okay, that was written of the Old Testament before that, that Old Testament closed, and you have a 400, 450-year intertestamental period where God didn't say anything canonically. In that last prophecy... Malachi is telling them about the messenger of the covenant who would come and he would be a refiner and he would be a separator of those who actually serve God and those who just put on a show, which is what he's condemned them for in Malachi already. He said, you're bringing all of these blind sacrifices and all of this junk because you think that you're righteous. You think that you're the people of God. You think that you are obeying me and that you're doing the things that I've called you to do when you're doing nothing but making a mockery out of my name later on in the gospels jesus is going to condemn them for putting weights on people that they can't even bear that they heap up all of these things and they heap up all of these laws and these rituals and all of these commands on these people and they don't even follow them themselves it's the same exact message from malachi that jesus is still hammering and even in in luke 3 before this which is part of next week John the Baptist comes. You remember the messenger that prepares the way for the messenger of the covenant. And he prepares the way in the wilderness. And John the Baptist comes to him and he looks at him and he says, Please understand this. The axe is at the root. The axe is at the root. And Jesus Christ explodes out of that. And he's just coming and he's, he's just chopping down the Pharisees left and right. Why? Because he hates Israel? Absolutely not. 
but because he loves Israel. He loves true Israel. He loves those of the faith. And there were many who came to him, and they loved him, and they heard him. And we see it here. We see that there were many who saw him as the Messiah, who saw him as the one who was to come, the Christ who would set, him, the, who would set them free and would restore their relationship with God. And then there were these who thought that they all had it together and that they were, they were righteous in God's sight because of all the rituals and because of all of the things that they were doing. And Jesus Christ is separating them. He's laying them bare. He is proving that their hearts are far from him. Here he says that this woman was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Well, that's... That's language, that's biblical language that she was a woman of the night. She was a woman of the city. It's, it's a language that denotes prostitution, probably temple prostitution. That she was probably, and this is a little conjecture here, but this is a sexually explicit perversion that this woman was probably selling her body in the worship of other false gods. But here she is, had been moved by God. And given faith to see, eyes to see. And she saw Christ. And it so moved her that she was willing to, to lay herself bare before everyone. Do you know how much, how much courage, how much faith, how much audacity it would take for this woman who received no acceptance from the religious party at that time? You saw how the Pharisees reacted to her. They looked at her in disgust. They even said of Christ, and it's funny because this is irony. Because the Pharisees, knowing that she's a sinner, says in their mind, saying to themselves, if this guy was a prophet, he would know who this woman was, that she's a sinner, and he's letting her touch him? Ironically, Jesus, who is God reads their thoughts and says, hold on a second. I got something to say to you, Simon, and nails him like he does the rich young ruler. That this woman who had faith enough, how hard would it be? Now, let me, and you don't have to raise your hand, but if you, if you feel comfortable, how many of you have felt uncomfortable in a church before because you thought, man, I'm too dirty to be here? And that's in our culture. And it can be like that. But I bet that church didn't look you straight in the face and say, what are you doing here, you wicked sinner? Right? In this day, that's what, you don't walk in the Pharisee's house. Sit at his table? There was a dog. She was less than a dog. And here she is. Rubbing all over Jesus' feet with her hair, with her tears. And so I guess they expected Jesus to have the same reaction that, that they had. Maybe for him to draw his feet back. What are you doing? Get off of me. Right? But what does Jesus do? <sighs> Let her do her thing, boys. Right? The alabaster ointment, this, you've probably heard this passage taught before. It's estimated that it's probably a year's worth of wages. Who knows how she got this? Uh, maybe it was through the temple prostitution. Maybe it was 
something that was given to her, she inherited, who knows. But this flask, this, this jar of, of ointment is estimated by many commentators around a year's wages. And here she is, dumping it on Messiah's feet. Dumping it out on his feet to anoint his feet. And not to get into it, I don't have much time, but many would even suggest that this was his anointing as he was being prepared for the sacrifice. You know, they would anoint the sacrifice, and th but th this was one of his anointings. Well, the Pharisees are astonished at this, that they just can't understand how this, this prophet, and they thought he was a prophet, they thought he was a teacher, they recognized his power. They didn't recognize his deity, but they recognized his power. Does this man not know who's touching him? And then we get to the parable that Jesus gives. And this is where I want to talk to you. I'll say one point on what I've read and taught so far. And that's this. Don't ever be ashamed to run up in a place and worship Jesus. Don't you ever be ashamed. And you go in there lock, stocked, and loaded with this understanding. Anybody that would look down on you for coming to worship a Savior like Jesus in the condition that you're in needs Jesus more than you. Amen. You understand that. Don't you ever let anybody, and I know that's easier said than done, but you know what it takes? It takes your eyes being so focused on the Messiah. It takes your heart being so bent on worshiping Him, so given and passionate to love him in ways that you don't, you don't care who's in the house. What you looking at? What you looking at? I'm going to worship Jesus. Do you know how embarrassing, if she would have let her flesh get, in, get to her, how, how undignified she had become? To what, and, and in this, remember, in this culture, in this society, they didn't have shoes. They didn't have paved roads. They didn't have concrete sidewalks. Jesus' feet was nasty. I'm I'm, he had, I'm sure he had corns and, and he had calluses and nasty. Oh, it was a custom that you need to wash your feet before you went in the house, right? That's why Jesus looked at the Pharisee and said, you didn't even give me any water to wash my feet. Here she is washing them with her tears. She washed his nasty, grubby, callous, nasty, stinking feet. Yes, Jesus was a real man who had stinking feet, okay? And she washed his stinking feet with her hair. How undignified. Does it remind you of another instance where somebody became undignified before the Lord? Jesus Christ isn't wanting your uppity suit your mask and all of your pretend stuff i'm not all down on suits you got a suit you want to wear that's fine that's fine i wear a suit sometimes just to get y'all guessing <laughs> some people be leaving i ain't come here for no suit right but i tell you what a suit ain't never covered up unrighteousness and a suit ain't never made up for partiality 
and looking down your nose at somebody else. But neither has jeans and t-shirt made up for love and adoration and respect for God. So let us not build traditions that cut our nose off spite our face either, right? We've got to stay focused on Christ. Well, here we are. Jesus hears his thoughts, nails him on it, and he talks about which one was forgiven more. He said, one of them owed 500, one of them owed 50. They couldn't pay. The one who owned the note said, look, don't worry about it. Which one do you think would love him more? Which one would you think would be more appreciative? The one who was forgiven 500 or the one who was forgiven 50? Which one? 500, quite obviously, right? You forgive a man 50 bucks, he's like, man, thanks, I appreciate that. You forgive a man 500, he's like, are you sure? <laughs> man, come here, give me, let me hug your neck, <laughs> you know? I love you, right? Here's the thing. There are different, so there's this common thought that, well, all sin's the same. We're all sinners. All sin's the same. And in one way, that's true if you mean, well, if we break one law, then we've broken the whole thing, and therefore we are cut off from God. That's true in that sense. We're all sinners. We're all condemned by our sin because we've sinned against the holy and righteous God. And, and, you know, God can have no place in sin. So we've cut ourselves off from God by our sin. But that's not true in another sense. We know for a fact because different sins are characterized differently in Scripture. There's levels of sins. One thing that we know is sexual sin is greater than many other types of sins. Why? Because Paul teaches us because it's inside the body. Everything else outside, but this is inside. And when you join yourself together with a prostitute or in sex outside of marriage, do you not know that you join the spirit together with a prostitute? Okay? We know that that's a weightier sin. And practically speaking, we also know that sins carry different consequences. You know, if, if Marcus lies to his mom, then she might slap him in the face. Probably. Probably. And it would be justified. Right? But if someone sleeps around on their wife, then it may lead to divorce. If someone kills somebody else, it may lead to, lead to life in prison. If people to a husband and a wife get selfish and they will not work through their differences and they will not reconcile, then the children suffer, maybe for generations. Different sins carry different weight. And so what I want to say here is, is that some of you have come in here with some weighty sin. Some of you have come in here with sins that maybe not anybody else even knows about, but you know the thoughts in the darkness of your own heart and your own mind. And maybe you're thinking, I could never, God can never love. I could never get into this place. I could never come to the place where God can actually use me. I'm so used up. I'm so dirty. I'm so spent. But don't you realize, can you realize, can you see from the scripture here that what is being taught is that he who is forgiven much is in a better prime and a better place to love God more than you could possibly imagine. Amen. I've often said to people, every time I talk to somebody and they're like, Man, Pastor when, or Brandon, when, when, I, when I get some things straightened out, then I'll be in a place where I can come. 
I try to tell them, I say, listen, it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. It's in our it's in our imperfections that his perfect nature is made manifest. And what we need to do is in our most, that's why God will break you. Listen, you be very careful of saying, well, when I get into a place that I'm, I'm ready and I'm primed to go to God, then I'll go to God. In your mind, you're thinking, well, when I get better, I'll go to God. But in God's mind, he's going, well, I guess you're not broken enough. Because only the broken will come. It's only those who... Re- See, the Phar- why didn't the Pharisees break down? Why didn't the Pharisees start crying and kissing his feet? Why didn't the Pharisees bow down in humble adoration of Messiah who they had been waiting for for thousands of years? Why did they not fall down on their face to cry out, Jesus, help me, save me, wash me clean? It's because they didn't think they needed to be washed. You know, you know why? Because they had finally gotten to a place where they could come into the presence of Jesus. That's what you're saying. When you're saying, when I get my stuff together, I'll come to Jesus. What you're saying is, when I am, when I am self-righteous enough and I have fooled myself into thinking that I don't need God, then I'll go into God's presence? That makes no sense. No. The Pharisee needed to be broken. And you know what? He would be broken. The axe was laid at the root. And when I read you what the judgment that fell on the Pharisees and Israel when they denied, when they denied the Messiah... Listen. You don't need to get right to come to God. You need to come to God to get right. But even in that, we have an issue. Is that Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. See, what the Pharisee didn't realize was that he was more depraved than the woman. Because the most dangerous sins of of all are the sins that are slick enough to hide under a facade of self-righteousness. That's why it's harder to reach rich people than it is poor people. All day, every day. Why do you think everybody's going to Bonaire to do ministry in Spruce Pine, but they're not going to Earl's Fort? How much harder do you think it would be to reach the unbelievers in Earl's Fort than it would be to reach the believers in Spruce Pine? They got all their money to trust in. They've got their cars. They've got their houses. And I say Earl's Fort. Name it. Name the upscale neighborhood. Woodfin Ridge. You see any stages out there proclaiming the gospel? You see anybody going out there door to door? No, they're all in the hood. They're all in the trailer parks. It is in your brokenness and in your lowly place 
for your prime to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's out of that place where evangelism can explode and love for the Savior and passionate devotion to God. So if you've come in here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, maybe when I get it together I can, you know, see about growing in my faith or serving in the church or, you know, maybe then I'll get saved. You've got it all wrong, sister. You've got it all wrong, brother. It's in our lowly state of awareness that we come to the Savior. Jesus Christ himself, it's not the well who need a doctor but the sick. He said, I did not come to call the righteous but to save sinners. That's what Jesus says. Now, in that, what do you think happened? So he, he pointed out, this is the last thing I'll say if you guys, I don't know if y'all got something you want to play. In that, when he told that parable, so that guy, the Pharisees, he thought that, it, Simon thought that in his mind, right? And Jesus pinned him on it. And Jesus says, look, I came in here and you didn't even give me water for my feet. You didn't do anything for me. You didn't even give me a kiss on the foot. You didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. You didn't, you didn't even greet me with a kiss. This woman's been kissing my feet. And so here we are. Let me set the stage for you. Here we are. And you need to understand this. The Pharisees in this day were the religious elite. They had these gowns that were decorated in stones and these high hats. And they were the upper the upper of the upper echelon of the upper class. The religious leaders. The temple was known as, as heaven on earth. So this is where heaven and earth was. This is, they were considered themselves the meeting place. You come to me if you want to know God. They had the money. The temple in this time was the Herodian temple. And it was, it far exceeded anything that you could possibly imagine. Gold, mountains of gold. We'll talk about that next week too. It's estimated by some historians that, that some of the stones that built the temple weighed over a million pounds. It took 50 years to complete it. It was a magnificent sight. And these Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the richest, most powerful men. And here Jesus is in a Pharisee's house, the, one of the richest, most influential men. He's having dinner at, at his table. And here comes this, this nasty woman of the city who slides in off the street. How she gets in, who knows? But she starts to weep at Jesus' feet. Her tears cover his feet and with that witness she takes and wipes his feet with her hair she takes her life savings and she dumps it on his feet to anoint his feet and here this religious rich man thinks to himself this guy must not know who she is and Jesus hears his thoughts nails him with a parable and says who do you think would love more Simon says, well, the one who was forgiven 500. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Then he, watch this. He completely ignores Simon the rest of the time. Almost as if to say, 
who do you think would love more? The woman or the one who had been forgiven much or the one who had been forgiven little? The one that was forgiven little or the one who was forgiven much? Simon says, Simon says, the one who was forgiven much. At that moment, ignoring Simon altogether, he turns to the one who had been forgiven much and who was weeping and broken. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You go in peace. You have been restored. And what do they do? Simon goes on to say what? Who does this guy think he is? Forgiven sins. Which only proved that he didn't believe in Messiah. He didn't believe he was Yahweh. He didn't believe he was God. He was still in his sins. He was still... The woman came in embarrassed and left free and on high. Simon was on high and got brought down low. And Jesus walks out of the place and flips the whole thing upside down. If you're in here this morning and you think you're too low for Jesus to love you, you're in the best place you've ever been. Come and bow down at his feet and let your tears anoint him. Pour out your whole life in front of him. You've got nothing better to spend it on. You've got no better place to go. And you've got nobody that will lift you up like Jesus Christ. He's the great equalizer, bringing high things down and bringing low things up. Let's all stand to our feet. Respond accordingly.